0: Most weeks, with rare exception, JT and I will have this conversation, usually fairly early in the week, um, about the songs that we're going to use during the course of the service. Um, And I I play a role in that, maybe more so than at some places, just because I'm working through the text and um, I love music, I love singing, and so these words to these songs, you know, come to mind as I'm working through a passage or something, and so we'll Try to fit all that together. So he came and he said, Do you have any ideas for the service this week? And I said, Yeah. Three o'clock this morning, I woke up and this song was on my head. And it's been there ever since. And and we just sang it. That doesn't happen every week, thankfully. Um, but that particular morning, about three o'clock, that song, Ancient Words, came into my brain. Uh, And it's been camped out there most of the week since then, uh, which is better than some songs that get camped out on my brain um, during the course of the week. You know, whatever it is I might have been listening to. Um, But look at the words that are up there and just uh, we sing. I fear, I fear like me, many of us sing words and don't listen to what we sing. We either are familiar with the song or whatever, and we, you know, we just kind of roll those words off our tongues, and don't really think too often about what exactly it is that we're singing. Um, but but the words to this are very applicable to our text today, and, and where I, where I believe the Lord wants us to go with His Word, holy words long preserved, long preserved for a reason for our walk in this world. And they are coming from God's heart. They resound with God's own heart. And so the prayer of the songwriter is that we will let these words impart to us, words of life, words of hope, that they'll give us strength. They'll help us cope in this world and that they'll guide us as we walk through. And as we look through God's word, especially when we come to passages like we have before us today, these narrative passages, about battles and defeats and there seems to be a level of brutality here that we should not be comfortable with. We read through these passages of scripture and we go, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? You know, how how, how does this impact my life or how should this in some way be relevant to me and what's going on there? And then we're reminded that every word of God's word comes to us. For this purpose that we would be changed. That God would be working in us. That's our prayer every week when we come together here. The prayer is that for some, your heart would literally be changed. That God would change your heart as Ezekiel says, Take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. To trust in Christ. To turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as your Savior. To make him the king of your life like we're reading about King David here. That's the prayer. The other prayer is that we as God's people would recognize his authority over our lives and that would submit ourselves to his word and that we would seek for him to change us and make us more like Christ. So we sing, we come with open hearts. We come with open hearts. And so that's our prayer as we come to a passage like we have before us today. So take, take your Bible and turn. We're back in Second Samuel. We're going to be looking today at two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 10, of 2 Samuel. Chapter 9 we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. Um, but I wanted us to look at this section. Why would we put sections, it's chapters 8 and 10 together in the message today? What, what are we doing there? Well, to answer that question, go back to chapter 7. It's been a little bit of time since we were in 2 Samuel and looking at the life of David. I don't know if you remember, but we said 2 Samuel 7 is, is Probably the most important chapter in the Old Testament. It it could very well be the most important chapter in God's word in the Old Testament. As God gives us this amazing promise, as he gives this promise to David, the Lord's covenant with David. And I'd like for us to read portion of this just to help us get a context for what we're going to see in chapters 8 and 10. Okay? So these words that were long preserved for today, for our walk in this world. And so the Lord's covenant with David, all right, follow along with me as I read, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You'll remember that as we've been in this, in this whole section of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've been looking forward to the time when God would raise up that king after his own heart. And David is finally on the throne. The kingdom is finally united under his rule and his reign. He has established Jerusalem as that capital city, as that place where the government will be located, where the nation will be centered. And David looks out on everything that's going on around him, and he sees, I dwell in this beautiful house, and God, the ark, sits in a tent, a ragged old tent. And he wants to do something about it. And Nathan the prophet says, sounds like a good idea. Go, do whatever's in your heart. So in verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house, excuse me, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say, To My servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then follow that with David's prayer of gratitude. And I'm not going to read all of that, but I just do want to point out one verse where David says, actually verse 19. And this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And he says next, look at this, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord There are three words that I'm going to repeat often in the course of this message. Three words that I want you to just kind of keep ingrained. Maybe they'll come back into your head this morning at 3 o'clock, all right? Tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock, all right? And you can blame it on me if you want to. Those three words are going to be history, prophecy, principle. History, prophecy, principle. Psalm 2 the pastor Jason read earlier is the most quoted Psalm. Well, no, actually Psalm 110, Psalm 110 and Psalm two are quoted more often than any other Psalms in the New Testament. Psalm two that Jason read, and I'll go back and refer to it in a few minutes, is kind of a, a, a guideline, if you will, a commentary on all that we're going to read in chapters eight and 10 of second Samuel. Psalm two is History. It's prophecy, it's principle. What I just read in Second Samuel 7 is history, it's a settled fact, it's prophecy, it's looking forward to something to come, and it's principle, meaning it's for us. There's something here for us that helps us know how to live and how to walk and, and how to respond to God's word to each other. So these words that I read out of 2 Samuel 7 are history. They're settled fact. I read an article a couple of years ago, and I pulled it back up again just to refresh my memory a little bit from Christianity Today. There had recently been a discovery. I think this was made, uh, golly, probably 15 years ago. A discovery was made of a a, stela, a, a stone tablet, if you will, stone monument there in Israel. And I'll just read you a couple of sentences out of the article. After decades of debate, new discoveries affirming David's historic stature have been discovered. The expanded evidentiary record from monument inscriptions to the remnants of ancient construction support the biblical account. It says the first breakthrough came in 1993 with the discovery of the Tel Dan Stele. On the Syrian border, an inscription on the stone tablet written by an Aramean king celebrating a military victory names the kingdom of the house of David. The stela dates 140 years after David's death, making David the earliest biblical person named in an archaeological record. Now, the only reason I share that with you is because what we read as history in the scriptures is not accepted as history by everybody. That shouldn't come as a shock to us. But even secular archaeologists are recognizing that the more is being, dis- the more that is discovered, and it's difficult to dig in Israel because it's not a wilderness. It's established cities and and metropolitan areas, so it's hard to go digging. But as they dig, they find more and more evidence that supports the biblical record. What we read in 2 Samuel 7 is history. What we read in 2 Samuel 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 is also prophecy in a sense. It's pointing us forward to something else. Psalm 110 was one of Jesus' favorite psalms. He quoted it often. It's also, as I mentioned a second ago, the New Testament writer's favorite psalm because it's repeatedly referred to in the New Testament. Jesus quoted Psalm 110 when he was being confronted by the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 12. And if you want to turn to Psalm 110 for just one second, I just want to make one quick point from it. Okay, Turn to Psalm 110, and as, as Jesus refers to this psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes this psalm. Peter quotes this psalm in Acts chapter 2, all looking first to David and then to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews looks to this psalm, quoting this same verse, talking about Jesus being greater than the angels. To which of the angels, the writer of Hebrews said... Did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Jesus looks at this and quotes it back and refers to it. And it's interesting. The Lord says to my Lord, the first word for Lord there in the Hebrew language is Yahweh. That covenantal name of God. The second name there for my Lord is the word Adonai. And Jesus has that audacity to take that title and say, that it refers to me. That he is basically saying in that statement in Mark 12. The son of man to come is the physical son of David but also equal with God. Which the New Testament writers all agree. My point in all of that is that these ancient words are history. But they are also prophecy. And they are also principle. They matter to us today. They are principle that give us perspective and an understanding of how to walk in this world, which is exactly what David prayed in his response prayer. These words, he says, are instruction for mankind, instruction for my church here in Roxborough in 2024. This is how God is going to work to save the world through this covenant promise he makes with David. So what were those promises that he made to David. He says in verse 9, I'm going to make you a great name. He says in verse 10, I'm going to give you a permanent place, David. I'm going to give my people, I'm going to plant them, he says, in a permanent place. I'm going to give you peace, he says. And I'm going to give you an eternal reign. History, prophecy, principle or perspective for us, okay? What follows in chapter 8 and 10 is how God did that. In that immediate setting, how did God give David a great name? How did God give David a place that was safe and protected and his people rest from their enemies? How did God establish David's kingdom without this continual attack from enemies? Now, it's not all over. We'll see that in the rest of the, the narrative that comes. But. This is what God said he would do in Psalm 2, right? As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. And he has set David on his holy hill there in Zion in Jerusalem. And he's given David a name, a place, a peace, and an eternal reign. But let's pick it up in chapter 8. And so these narrative passages in 8 and 10, I'm I'm, I'm not going to read all of these chapters uh, but I do want us to look at chapter 8 for just a second. So follow along with me in Second Samuel chapter 8. What is it that John, that Jason read earlier from Psalm 2? The kings of the earth set themselves, the writer said. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Come, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast their cords from us. Let's rebel against God and his anointed king. So we pick up the reading in chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Megeth Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus had come to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now this section should cause us to go, whoa. That seems pretty harsh, David. And it's a good thing for us to... We should have that kind of response to what we read here. But again, we got to take the whole counsel of God, the whole picture of who God is and what he's doing in this Old Testament setting and what he's promised to David and what he fulfills in Christ to come so that we have a big picture of what's happening here. This summarizes everything that God is doing for David. It says there in verse six that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It says the very same thing later on in verse 14 the Lord gave to David victory wherever he went. David defeats and subdues these old ancient enemies of God and his people. All right? He defeats the Philistines. He defeats the Moabites. And executes two-thirds of their army. He defeats and subdues the Arameans. These are Damascus, Aramean cities that are mentioned here. He, He does away with their cavalry, with their chariots and their horses. He defeats and subdues those from Edom, the Edomites. So, keep this in mind as we read an account like this, okay? God had announced earlier... A long time ago, as his people entered into this land, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to remove those who are there, those who are not worshipers of Yahweh, those who are, listen to this, like every other human being every born, ever born, like you and me, sinners and rebellion against the God who created them. And God is using different people throughout the Old Testament as a means of judgment. As his hand, if you will, as his sword. And so what we see here is that as David defeats and subdues these enemies, it's the Lord who is bringing the victory. And what God is doing here is exactly what he said he was going to do in Psalm 2, right? I put my king on my holy hill. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so what we see later in Psalm 2 is what we see here. In, in this passage of scripture. Moab's sin against God and his people is not new. They're idolaters. They sacrifice their children. They have temple prostitutes. I mean, we could go on and on. And God had pronounced judgment on these nations a long time ago. And here he is using David to carry out that judgment. David is acting as God's agent. Even as he brings about this judgment here. But, but. Ezekiel tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should we. Neither should we. We should be repulsed in one sense by the violence that we see here. And we should just be reminded that there is a high cost to hard-hearted sin. And later on we see the Son of Man returning, riding his white horse with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. And it is R-rated to the extreme as God's judgment is pressed out like the wine press. So this passage here just reminds us of, of what God is doing in a big picture. I love what Tim Chester says. Just listen to this in his little commentary. He said, we must not judge the practices and actions of ancient warriors by modern standards of warfare. They were very different times and, strange as it may seem to us, the mass execution of the defeated army may actually have seemed like kindness to the first readers of Second Samuel, and perhaps even to the nations surrounding Israel. Many other countries were far more brutal in their torture and treatment of defeated prisoners after a battle than was David. So it's just just a reminder that we're looking at this historical account here, but we have to look at it with theological big picture eyes and recognize that the king and his kingdom were being opposed. And God had promised that those enemies would be subdued. And they are. Secondly, not only are those enemies subdued, but the king and his kingdom are enriched and honored through those victories. Look what comes next. We already saw that they became servants to David, the Moabites, and brought tribute to him. It says later on that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And in verse 7, David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, David, King David took much bronze. And when Toi, king of Hamath... Heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that He dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah. So the king and his kingdom are enriched and honored through these victories. But do you notice that none of this is for David's personal gain? That all that came in, David dedicated to the Lord. And later on, we'll see where David takes these things and gives them to Solomon for use in building God's temple. So this 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 booty, if you will, this prize from the battlefield, which was common in that day. There's a similarity between nations of David's day and nations of our day. We take pride in our wealth. Nations are listed in many lists according to the the riches that they have. Even today, nations are listed by terms of prosperity. There is nothing new under the sun. And so, as these nations then are defeated, that wealth changes hands. And those that are defeated by David, that wealth becomes theirs and he dedicates it to the Lord. So some of this comes in by defeat. Some of it comes in by choice. Wait, isn't that exactly what Psalm 2 said? Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Toy takes refuge in King David. Because the enemy of Toy is the enemy of David. So David is my friend. And that's exactly what happens here. He sees that his long enemy in Hadadezer has been defeated by David, and they come to David bringing tribute, asking about his health and blessing him. I guess it's how that conversation started. So, but here's this picture of these nations bringing their wealth, some by defeat, some by decision. And David dedicates all of this to the Lord. There's one other section here I want you to see. Look at verse 13. Starting in verse 13, David made a name for himself, and he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. If we had a map of Jerusalem and a map of the Holy Land in front of us, we would see that some of these enemies that were defeated are in the south. Some of them are in the north. Some of them are in the east, and some are in the west. David has been given rest from his enemies. And he's been given reign and control of that whole geographic part of the world. God indeed is making David a great name. Is there a contrast here? Is there something David made a name for himself? No, I don't think so. David is just trusting in the Lord and the Lord has given him victory. It says there in verse 14, it says it earlier in verse 6. God is doing exactly what he promised in his covenant to Abraham. I will raise up kings after you, and I will make much of your name is basically what God says to Abraham. And here he is doing it for David. The king and his kingdom are enriched and honored. And look at what comes next. Just little verses that we would be tempted to blow over. So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zerahiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, and the son of Abathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the sons of Jehoadiah, was over the Kerathites and the Pelothites, And David's sons were priests. Now that last phrase there, I don't believe, and many commentators agree, these David's sons were not allowed to be priests in in the religious sense of the word. Okay? And that word is sometimes used for those who are just officials in some sense. I don't, some commentators think there's a premonition here or at least a preview of how David might take liberty. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think his sons were just elevated to a place of prominence in the kingdom. But here's the point. David reigned over all of Israel. David reigned as a king should reign and did what a king should do. He, he, he administered justice and equity. To all of the people. It's a summary statement of his of his whole reign, I believe, until things start unfolding here shortly. He is God's anointed, and he's doing what God's anointed king is supposed to do, and he's doing it the way he should do it. And I think in here is a point of application for us that I'll bring up at the end of the message. But it's important for us to remember that these words are history and they are also prophecy. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 11 right quick and let me just remind you that as well as David may have led and ruled, as well as David may have done as he administered justice and equity, he is still a man and he has clay feet worse than many. And he's going to fail miserably, but he points us forward to a king who is coming. He points us forward to a ruler that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a stump, excuse me, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? It's David's father. And after after David sins, as we'll see in a couple of chapters, and, and after all of the turmoil tears his kingdom apart, God has still not given up on his promise or changed his mind. And the kingdom of David and the promise of God looks like a little stump that's been cut down. But Isaiah says there'll be a shoot come forth from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But look, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins it's history and it's prophecy it's pointing us to the king who would come let's go on to chapter 10 i'll skip chapter 9 because david's character the character of this man his 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 strength his military prowess His passion and his love for God, his love for the people that he's called to lead, all of those I think are evident in these chapters. In chapter 9, as we will see next week, is a striking picture of his grace and kindness. The heart of this man is seen nowhere better than it's seen in chapter 9. David is a kind king. And in chapter 10, this kindness is made evident in the beginning of the chapter. But the king and his kindness in chapter 10 are rejected again. They are rejected. I won't read the whole chapter, but follow along with me in these first few verses that help us see what's about to happen. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now let's pause right there for just a second. Nahash might ring a bell in some of our minds as we think back through the history of Israel thus far. Saul did very little that was commendable. But one of the things that Saul did that was very commendable was when an Ammonite king named Nahash, made a threat against a tribe of God's people. And he wanted to subdue them. And if we go back and look, I think it's in chapter 7 of First Samuel. Might be 6, I forget. Nahash made this suggestion, if you will. Made a, a, a proposal to the Israelites. Punch out your right eye. And I'll let you live. And the chapter goes on to show us how Saul eventually comes and rescues and defeats Nahash. It doesn't say he kills him. I have no idea how Nahash went from a sworn enemy to Saul to being someone that has shown favor to David. Maybe simply in the fact that David stepped in and took over the throne that Saul had had. But I believe it's the same guy, Nahash, the king, whose name means serpent. (laughs) I remember when we preached it, we went back and we looked at, at all the way back at Goliath, who was clothed with those armor scales. And this serpent who raised his head against God's people. Well, somehow... A relationship has been restored. And when Nahash dies, and after something that he had done that had shown loyalty to David, David sent his servants. I pick up the reading again there. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So David, hearing that Nahash has died, in kindness, sends his servants to just send condolences Show honor and respect to this family as this father has died. It's amazing demonstration of kindness on David's part. It's not received well. Verse three. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. That is not good. Okay? That is not good. Just as Nahash wanted to not just handicap the Israelites, he wanted to dishonor them. He wanted to shame them by punching out their right eye. Well, here... Under the advice of his counselors, who don't believe David is legit in his concern, say, no, that's not while he's here. And so those that David sends on this mission of good faith and compassion are absolutely humiliated. They cut off half of their beard. I don't think they lowered. I don't think they raised it, cut off half of it and then took their garments and cut them off at the hips dishonor in the worst way in that culture and sent them back and guess what it didn't go well now david even shows compassion to his men so when it was told to david in verse five he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed and the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I think that's an act of kindness on David's part. He doesn't even allow them men to come all the way back home where they would be totally humiliated. Stay away in Jericho until your beards grow back and then come home. Now, some of us would have been there a long, long time. Some of you would have been there a couple of days. Just making a manly assessment there, Okay. Whatever time it was going to take, though, they were to remain there until they could go back home. David did something. I'm sure the word of it spread and people heard about it. But it says in verse six that the Ammonites saw something. It's interesting that they saw a stench. How do you see a smell? Well, they did. The Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. This was an act of war. And was responded to as such. The Ammonites saw that they'd become a stench to David and the Ammonites sent. <laughs> I love this. Let's go hire somebody to fight this battle that we've created. And so they do. The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with a 1,000 men, and the, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came and drew up in the battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob, and the men of Tob and Makal were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in the front and in the rear, he then went to putting together a military strategy, Joab being the general of David's armies. And the rest of the chapter kind of tells us how that pans out. So here's the picture. The Ammonites, have done an act of war in shaming these Israelite men. And David responds appropriately in that regard by sending his army. The Ammonites go out and hire all of these mercenaries to come and fight with them and for them. They divide their armies, some of them in the city, some of them in the country. And Joab sees that he's stuck in the middle. He sees that they're against him in the front and in the rear. And he decides to divide his army... And says, if you do well, then, and I need you, come and fight with me. If I do well and you need me, I'll come and fight with you. So he sets this strategy, and, and they do win that victory. I want to read you something that Joab says as he prepares his soldiers to go out and face the Ammonites and their hired army. Here's what he says, alright, pick up the reading there in chapter 10. We'll start in verse 11. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Joab is not an example of of faith throughout much of 1st and 2nd Samuel. He's not a man we would want to model in many ways. And we will see. I'm going to say this now and you'll hear me say it again in a couple of chapters. There's only one Satan and there's only one Jesus. That's a quote from the the Bible podcast that Susan and I listen to and many of you listen to as well put out by Nine Marks. And as they were working through the book of Judges, that statement was made. There's only one Satan. There's only one Jesus. And everybody else falls in the middle somewhere. And so Joab falls in the middle And yet his words here are a picture of faith. It's a picture of faith. So David extends kindness and sympathy. It's rejected and his men are humiliated. And those men, as they return home, are met with compassion, even by David, and told to wait until you come back. And these words of Joab are really at the heart of this chapter. They're at the middle of everything we read here. And Joab's words are an expression, I believe, of faith. Here's what he says, basically, you know, I know that God is good and I know that God will do good. That's faith. That's trusting in the Lord, even when circumstances would seem to point us to a situation that's not going to be good. So he says here, I know that I know that God is good. We're going to show courage. We're going to be courageous for the sake of our people. And God is going to do what seems good to him. God is good. And what he does is good. And he's the one that decides what that goodness needs to look like. That's not up to us to decide that. And Joab just expresses that faith there. It's a wonderful expression of faith. One of the ways we've heard it said before is that we can trust God's heart even when we can't begin to figure out what we see his hand doing. And Joab's just simply saying, I'm going to trust God in this, and we need to exemplify that for our people to follow. So the king and his kindness are rejected, and there is brought a victory there. And then it says in verse 15, the Syrians saw that they had been defeated, and they don't give up yet. And they gather another army together, and David himself gathers Israel to meet them on the field of battle. And it says there that the Syrians fled before Israel. David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, their commander of the army, and he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel. I bet they did. And became subject to them. And so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. King David and his kingdom are feared again as chapter 10 closes. So the Ammonites scorn David, scorn the Lord's anointed, and they are defeated. The Arameans do the same thing, and they're defeated twice, it says. The psalmist in Psalm 2 said, The nations conspire against the Lord and against his anointed. And the Lord sits on his throne and laughs in derision at them. They plot in vain, the psalmist said. And that leads to their destruction. Let me wrap this up by just making this final application that you see in your sermon notes. The point of all of this, I believe, is that King David and his victories, they are history. We see how God has been faithful in the past, right? Right? God has been faithful in the past to raise up David from the sheepfold and make him shepherd over his whole nation. He's been faithful to give him a name, to give him a place, to give him peace, to give him a reign, to give him a kingdom and promise that kingdom forever. It is history. God has done this. Our God has not changed, right, church? No, he's not changed. He's as faithful in 2024 as he was then. We can trust That historical faithfulness. This is also prophecy. This is prophecy pointing us to a king to come. This king, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, will give us the ultimate victory. The sting of sin is death. The sting of death is sin, rather. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians chapter two, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God is made alive with him. That's with Christ, having forgiven all the trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But it goes on. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It says in Hebrews chapter two, the children share in flesh and blood. And so the son of David, the son of man, the God man came to this world, the writer of Hebrews says, and he himself took on these same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and free us from the slavery of the fear of death. This all points us to a king to come. Who defeats sin and the power of sin, who takes away the condemnation of sin and gives us the reception as sons of God. He frees us from the fear of death, but make no mistake, God's kindness does come to an end, right? David is not going to be the means of judgment anymore. And so while we still have the breath to draw, And while we still have the heart to respond, I think the writer, I think John tells us in Revelation chapter 19 that we need to be ready. Then I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name with which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is prophecy. But it is also principle. It's principle, it's perspective. It says that we should kiss the son and worship him. Lest he strike with a rod of iron. This isn't a hellfire and brimstone sermon. This is just biblical reality. That you trust in Jesus or you are judged by him. And the kings of this earth are just a picture of kings of this earth. Governments of this earth. Who have from the beginning in Genesis 3 rebelled against God just like Adam and Eve did. And God sits on his throne and laughs in derision. He is not swayed. He is not changed. He is not concerned. He is sovereign over it all. So the principles that we can walk away with, I just want to leave you with two quickly. One, again, the faith of Joab is commendable. We can trust God's heart even if we can't make a lick of sense out of what we see going on around us. God is good and he will do good. And we as God's people are called to exemplify that. The world will call it courage. The Bible calls it faith. And the writer of Hebrews says that without that faith it is impossible to please God. So let's have that faith of Joab. Secondly, one thing that a commentator pointed out that I really appreciated, the character of his king that we saw back there at the end of chapter nine, where David administered justice and equity. You and I aren't going to rule a kingdom, and we are not going to bring a kingdom about. And we are not King David, not in any way when it comes to justice and equity. But you know what? God has placed each one of us in a place of influence. As a dad, as a mom, as a grandparent, as an employer, as an employee, as an elder in this church, as a deacon, as a teacher, as a teacher in a classroom. God has put us in places of influence. Where we, under the reign of King Jesus, who is just and righteous, that I means right and good and what he does. We are not him, but we are called to exemplify him. We're called to exhibit that pattern. And I love, I love what one commentator said. No, we're not Davidic kings and we will not perfectly do what is just and right, but we ought to be planting kingdom righteousness in our own little plots and whatever relationships or capacities we have. He says, your task is not to leave doing what is just and right to David, but to peel off that kingdom ideal and stick it over your circumstances in your own life and do what is just and right with your own people. Amen. That's a good application for us from that part. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for the historical reality of your word. For the prophetic sense that it points to so much more. That King Jesus who is to come. And for the principles we can take from it. Ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. God thank you that these words come from your heart. And let that word impart to us what you choose and will to do in each of our lives. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.